if the self-help section of your favorite local bookstore is any indicator, we live in a culture that is starving for confidence. I'll try to explain what I mean by that. When, when I Googled confidence in the Amazon online bookstore this week, I had, no joke, 20,919 results, including the following titles, which I wanted to share a few with you. The Confidence Gap, A Guide to Overcoming Fear and Self-Doubt, The Confidence Code, The Science and Art of Self-Assurance, Boosting Your Confidence, A 21-Day Challenge to Help You Achieve Your Goals and Live Well, Extreme Confidence, I'm not making this up, A Comprehensive Guide for Increasing Self-Esteem and Confidence, and my personal favorite, You Are a Bad Fill-in-the-Blank, How to Stop (laughs) Doubting Your Greatness and Start Living an Awesome Life. Those are best-selling books. Okay, I sorted that by number of reviews. I think that shows what's fairly obvious, and that is that as a culture, as human beings, we're starving for confidence. We're hungry for confidence. And and based on the titles alone, it appears that confidence is actually a lot closer than some of us realized, okay? Confidence apparently comes from recognizing just how great you are. All you have to do is replace self-doubt with self-assurance, boost your self-esteem, and you too can start living a, quote, awesome life. Friends, I, I want to warn you, if you're not already aware of this, that that is a false hope. It's a false hope. It's, it's a broken cistern. It's an empty refuge. You won't find confidence in those ways. Certainly not enduring confidence. Confidence Light in the midst of darkness, hope in the midst of suffering comes not to those who are confident in their own greatness or their own power or their own wisdom. Confidence comes to those who are confident in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's where it comes from. That's where it endures. Because it's in Christ that God reveals his wisdom and in Christ that God displays his power. And when we perceive his wisdom in Christ and we behold his power in Christ, voila, we discover confidence. (laughs) Not in us, but in him. And the Babylonian exiles that Daniel is writing to here, including in chapter two, they found confidence in the midst of darkness and and hope in the midst of suffering because God used chapters like this, Daniel 2, to fix their confidence on the supremacy of God, his wisdom and his power. 
and living on this side of the cross, on this side of Jesus' work, I'll argue that we have an even greater clarity than the Jewish exiles did on the wisdom of God and the power of God. A greater clarity. And yet, the core message is the same. So what God was seeking to do through these words in the life of the Babylonian exiles is no different, friends, than what he wants to do in us through these words today. We may have greater clarity because we live on this side of the cross, but the divinely intended effect is the same. Namely, to give us confidence in the supremacy of Christ. That's the goal believe that's why God gave us these words. Confidence in the supremacy of Christ is what gives us light in the midst of darkness and hope in the midst of suffering, okay? And there are two reasons for that which are gonna be the two points of this sermon. First, okay, point one, the supremacy of God's wisdom is revealed in Christ. Supremacy of God's wisdom is, is revealed in Christ. So let's, let's just start with this setting here, okay? Daniel 2 opens with a frightening dilemma. The king of Babylon is having recurring nightmares. Recurring nightmares, dreams that he can't stop or figure out what they mean. And the contrast here is striking. The contrast to chapter one. Because what's happening back in chapter one? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar is, is what? He's attacking cities, He's taking prisoners, he's, he's looting temples, he's assigning training, he's commanding his court officials. He, he appears to be in control of everyone and everything. And then you get to chapter two and the guy who is apparently the most powerful guy in the world at that point, he hits a wall. That's insightful. There's something he can't control. He can't control his dreams. Verse 1, so his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. But being the resourceful, amazing, powerful, almighty king that he is, he has a contingency plan. That's all good kings apparently do. Namely, he's got a whole group of guys on staff that he's kept there for just this sort of situation. Okay, verse two, who are they? Magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. Okay, don't get hung up on the terms. What you need to know about these guys is that they're professional dream interpreters. That's their job description. That's at least what they're supposed to be. So Nebuchadnezzar calls them and they reply, verse four, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll show the interpretation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, suffice it to say, may not fear God, but he's not a fool entirely. Apparently, he has a strong suspicion that these guys are charlatans, that these guys are con men, and they've just been hanging around, eating his food, drinking his wine, but they're not legit. Okay, so he creates this test. If you can tell me the dream and its interpretation, I'll reward you. If you can't, I'll kill you. Grateful I haven't ever had to face one of those. <laughs> and after some negotiation, what, what, what do the Chaldeans say? What do they say? Look at verse 10. There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. 
For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult. No joke. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Okay, notice the assumptions in what they're saying. Okay, what are they assuming? One, man can't do what you're asking us to do. Two, only the gods can do what you're asking us to do. Okay, and three, the gods don't live among us or share their wisdom with us. So what's their view of the world? Well, there's a physical world where man dwells, there's a spiritual world where the God dwells, and there's no back and forth communication between them. That's their world. So we can't do it, Nebuchadnezzar. We simply don't have that kind of wisdom. It's necessarily divine, and therefore it is beyond our understanding. And surprise, surprise, Nebuchadnezzar is not happy about that. Why? Because the whole reason he hired these guys, the whole reason he's paid for them for however long, is because you claim, guys, to have divine insight. And now you're telling me not only that you don't, but evidently it's been impossible for you all along. How many other dreams have you interpreted? Right? Wise men, yes, I'm talking to you, meet Arioch, the chief executioner. That's what he does. Friends, that little vignette screams something. It screams that human wisdom is not unlimited. It screams that human wisdom is not unlimited. It's not unlimited. Many truths are completely beyond the grasp of a natural mind. Completely beyond our grasp. That there's these spiritual realities that that we intuitively know exist, but nonetheless, they exceed our understanding. So so just think with me for a second about the, the questions in this life that matter most. You know, the kinds of questions that never show up on SportsCenter, but we think about nonetheless when we turn it off and we're lying in bed and the house is quiet and, and you just, you find your mind going to places that you don't go unless it's the middle of the night and the house is quiet and you, and you start wondering things like, why am I here? Do our actions really matter? What separates good from evil? Or, or maybe even, is there life after death? We, we like to think that we're smart. We like to think that nothing is beyond our comprehension. With enough education, enough degrees, enough resources. But friends, it's not the case. You are a finite creature. Just like me. We're finite creatures. And Daniel agrees. Look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. I'm going to move around a little bit here. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen in its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, listen, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But 
There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Nebuchadnezzar, these guys are speaking the truth. There's not a man on earth who has the wisdom to know your thoughts or your dreams. Only God knows your thoughts, Nebuchadnezzar. Only God knows your dreams. And he's not like us. He dwells in heaven. Why does Daniel say that? Why why does he say, but there is a God in heaven and not in the temples of Babylon where this king sought to manipulate the spirits? It's because Daniel's affirming the holiness and the transcendent otherness of God. That's what he's doing. He's in heaven We're on earth, and he is infinitely greater than us. That's what Daniel's saying to this pagan king, all right? Isaiah 40, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with a span? Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales? and the hills in a balance? Who who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man chose him as counsel? Whom did he consult and, and who made him understand? A little later, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. It's like prophet Isaiah speaking of the God who dwells in heaven. And friends, I believe, I believe that the pervasive casualness, do you know what I mean by that? The, the pervasive informality, the, the casual attitude that we have toward anyone and everything apparently these days, that casualness, okay, doesn't serve us when it comes to understanding the things of God. It doesn't serve us, okay, because there's a majesty, there's a transcendent glory, there's a supremacy to God that is easy to forget if you walk in on Sunday morning and you're drinking coffee and you put your feet up and you sit back to be entertained. Not Getting on you coffee drinkers, okay? But, but there's a casualness that's a little harder to lay, lay well, it's a little easier to lay hold of if, if you walk into a cathedral. Some of you have been in one of those buildings in Europe and you realize, oh my, the very architecture of this place says something about their understanding of God. When the, when the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne with the train of his robe filling the temple. You know what he didn't say? Hey, what's up, God? No. No, what did he say? He said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
He was undone. When Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, there's a God, but he's not in your temple, he's in heaven, Daniel got it right. He got it right. And yet, and yet, hear me on this, the God who dwells in heaven is also a revealing God. This is amazing. He's a disclosing God, a Lord who condescends to make truth known to us that we would otherwise never understand on our own. What's Daniel say? Nebuchadnezzar, there's a God in heaven who what? Who reveals mysteries. He's in heaven, but he reveals mysteries. And he has made known to you what will be in the latter days. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, God knows all things and understands all things. Full stop. He's in heaven. He's not like you or your gods. And yet, that God who knows all things and understands all things, because he knows all things and because he understands all things, he is able to reveal things to us that we would never understand otherwise. And in the greatness of his mercy, God reveals to Daniel exactly what he asked for. Exactly. The nature of the dream and the interpretation. And, but Daniel recognizes, look here at verse 20. Daniel recognizes that when God answers that prayer and reveals to him in a supernatural way this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and its interpretation, that that experience points to a greater reality. Okay, verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. Listen to this. Listen to this. Verse 21b, he gives wisdom to the wise. Wisdom belongs to him and he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. What does that mean? Well, it means that to whatever degree, friend, you possess any wisdom or knowledge, even if you think it is strictly related to the material or physical world, that is a gift from God. He gave it to you gave it to you. Whether you're a student, a gardener, an engineer, it's the Lord who gave it to you. All true wisdom, all true knowledge ultimately finds its source in God, not us. That's what Daniel's saying. It's, it's not like human beings know some things and God knows some other things. And so we need God to sort of fill in our gaps and make us greater. No, no, all wisdom and knowledge come from him. All wisdom and all knowledge, okay? And we are desperately dependent on the wisdom and knowledge that God reveals to us. Desperately dependent and nowhere is that more true than the mystery of the gospel, right? So you, you wanna talk about deep and hidden things? You wanna talk about what lies in the darkness? Well, then let's talk about how sinners like us can experience the joy of relationship with God. Let's talk about that, okay? You won't find a greater dilemma. You can't contemplate a greater mystery, all right? That the content and the, the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, amazing as it was, was nothing compared to the mystery of the gospel which is why the Apostle Paul rejoiced in 2 Corinthians 4, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
God, God was so merciful to Daniel and to Nebuchadnezzar to reveal to them the dream and the interpretation. Friend, if God has opened up your heart to the, his saving plan in the gospel, he has been even more merciful to you. Even more merciful to you. That, that's a greater mystery. <laughs> that's a greater glory. God, Daniel needed God to reveal a dream to him to preserve his life on earth. We need God to reveal the gospel to us in order to preserve our life for all eternity. And praise God he's done that. You know, praise God that he revealed the supremacy of his saving wisdom in the person and work of Christ. And so I I warn you, I warn those of you who are listening to me today, okay? Hebrews 3, 7. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't be confronted by the revelation of God's plan of salvation through the cross of Christ to deal with the sin that separates you from God and just say, okay, whatever. No. Repent and trust him to save you. Okay, if, if God's been merciful to you, as he was merciful to Daniel, if, if you have, as I just said that, come to understand the mystery of the gospel, then take heart. And here's why, okay? The truth that God has revealed to you in the past about Jesus and the truth that God continues to reveal to you about Jesus as you study and read his word, okay? That truth equips you with all you need to be confident in the midst of darkness and suffering. It equips you with all you need, okay? The supremacy of God's wisdom enabled Daniel to respond with remarkable confidence in the face of what I would argue is terrible injustice, right? So, so, so let's look at this example. How, how does the supremacy of God's wisdom that was revealed to Daniel empower him with confidence in the midst of darkness and suffering? Okay, verse 13. Look back a little bit here. So the decree goes out, wise men meet Arioch, And the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. Verse 15, why is the decree of the king so urgent? There's a lesson in that. There's a lesson in that, okay? In the face of injustice, Daniel neither acquiesces, just rolls over, fine, chop off my head, nor does he attack. How dare you, Arioch? No, he practices what I would call humble courage. Humble courage. He responds with prudence and wisdom. He he works hard to understand, to engage in conversation, and look for an opportunity to end the injustice. Now, follow me here. Why was he able to respond with humble courage? It's because of the wisdom that God had revealed to him all the way back in Daniel chapter 1. Look at verse, Daniel 1 verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So Daniel heads into this crisis knowing God as a God who reveals, as a God who gives wisdom and, and it was the wisdom God had already given him that enabled him to respond with humble courage in the face of injustice. And his humble courage produced a courageous faith, 
I mean, think about it. Did you notice he asked for an appointment to give the king the interpretation before God had given it to him? I hope you caught that. It's not as though God said, hey, Daniel, tomorrow night you're getting the interpretation, so two days from now, why don't you make an appointment for the king? Daniel didn't know that. His humble courage because of the wisdom God had already revealed to him gave him a courageous faith to believe that the the God who had revealed wisdom was gonna continue revealing all the wisdom he needed to be faithful to the Lord, even in the face of injustice. Friend, if you're a Christian, God has already been faithful to reveal his wisdom to you in Christ. And that past faithfulness guarantees a promise that there is no situation coming at you this week in your life where the God who has revealed his wisdom to you in Christ is not going to continue giving you all the wisdom you need, even in the face of great injustice. All the wisdom you need. How do we know that? Well, Jesus says as much in Matthew 10. When they, speaking to his disciples, deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you. What does that mean? Wherever you encounter injustice, trouble of any sort this week, know Christian, that the God who in the past revealed his wisdom to you in Christ is not about to stop doing that. And he's going to keep revealing all the wisdom that you need to not only have a humble courage and a courageous faith, but to allow both those things to overflow in faithful prayer. And that's what we see here, right? Humble courage, overlap, produces courageous faith, which produces what? Faithful prayer. Okay, look at verse 18. When Daniel and his friends pray for wisdom, this is amazing. They don't ask God to give them what they deserve. Hello, God. In case you haven't noticed, you got us in this mess, and it's about time that you came through on your end of the bargain and gave me the interpretation so I don't get my head cut off. Now, what what does he do? He prays, he cries out for mercy. It's interesting. They need God's wisdom. They they believe, they made the appointment with the king for crying out loud. They believe that God's going to be faithful to give it, but they know that when he does, it's only going to be because he's a merciful God. A merciful God. Church, never forget this, okay? Even in the midst of your darkest hour, where you, you are wrestling the hardest with injustice and trouble in your world, even in that moment, God is never your debtor. God never owes us. We owe him. We need mercy. We need mercy. Humble courage produces courageous faith, which overflows in in faithful prayer for God to have mercy on us. So whenever you're confronted by injustice, whether it's moral or criminal or racial, take heart in knowing that in Christ, God has revealed what is true. And in Christ, God is gonna continue revealing what is true so that you can follow him in every situation. Okay, confidence in the supremacy of Christ, his wisdom gives light in the midst of darkness hope in the midst of suffering okay that's that's the first point here's the second okay the supremacy of God's wisdom is revealed in Christ point two the supremacy of God's power is displayed in Christ look at verse 20 
Verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong what? Wisdom and might. In case you haven't noticed, that's the two points of this sermon. Wisdom and might, okay? You, you, side note, when I develop points for a sermon, I work really hard to get them from the text. You should be looking for that. If a pastor ever says, point one, the first thing you should be thinking is, show me in the Bible, all right? Back to the sermon, okay? So, verse 20, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Two things, why? He changes times and seasons. Look at this. He removes kings and sets up kings. Removes kings, sets up kings. The Daniel's exclamation of praise, I hope you noticed, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, that stands in stark contrast to what the charlatan said to Nebuchadnezzar. O king, live forever. Daniel knows Nebuchadnezzar's not living forever. It's the God of Israel who lives forever. He's the one who reigns eternally, okay? The Chaldeans might try to, quote, gain time, or as we saw in verse nine, Nebuchadnezzar says, you guys are speaking lying and corrupt words before me till the times change, but it's only the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, who has the power to change times and seasons. He's contrasting in his his worship to God all the lies that he's just heard with what's true. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't reign forever. God does. The Chaldeans can't control their life. God does. So at every point, Daniel's assaulting, assaulting the supposed eternality and supremacy of all these human kingdoms with the absolute supremacy of the power of God. And nowhere is the absolute supremacy of the power of God seen more clearly in Daniel 2, I believe, than this vision, this dream that God gives Nebuchadnezzar. So let's look at this for just a couple minutes here, okay? In his dream, the king of Babylon, he beholds a statue of a man, quote, mighty and of exceeding brightness. Now, remember, this guy's not a wimp, okay? He kills people all the time. (laughs) He sacks cities. He loots temples. He's hardened. He's an absolute monarch. I mean, We don't have dictators like him today. But he is scared. He is freaking out. Because what he sees, what he sees is a head of gold and chest and arms of silver and a middle and thighs of bronze and legs and feet of iron and clay. It's terrifying. It's of exceeding brightness. And then out of nowhere, he sees a hand that he recognizes that's not a human hand. Carve out a stone from a rock, and the rock is thrown at the feet of the statue and shatters the clay and shatters the iron, and the entire thing comes crumbling down. It becomes like dust, and the wind carries it away, and it is gone completely gone. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and and filled the whole earth. Now just imagine, as Nebuchadnezzar's sitting there, 
And Daniel recounts it point by point. Exactly what he saw. What's going on in that guy? I'm not sure that's a comforting moment. Because suddenly, I'm aware that this man is in touch with a power that I'm not and none of my guys are. But Daniel doesn't even stop and let him respond. He just goes right into the interpretation. Right? And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. But dude, listen. You didn't earn your kingdom or your power or your might and your glory. You might rule the greatest empire on earth right now, but verse 36, God gave it to you. He gave it to you. You think you earned it. You you think you built it. You think you forged your kingdom through the supremacy of your power. God says you didn't. It was a gift to you from God. Verse 21, the God who removes kings and sets up kings. Removes kings and sets up things. Just think about what you removed this morning. Okay, I removed a cereal box from the pantry. I removed keys from my pocket, cell phone from my pocket. You know, clothes off the the closet rack, okay? Now now think about what what did you set up this week? Well, maybe you set up an appointment. Maybe you set up a a new initiative at your company or a group project or, or a dinner with your spouse or maybe you have kids and you felt really courageous and so you decided to try to set up one of those big plastic toys where the directions never make sense and there's always a missing part, but you got it, you know, so you're really proud of yourself. I set it up. Well, you know what God removes and sets up? Kings. Rulers, presidents, prime ministers, dictators, CEOs, police sergeants, department chairs, and anyone else you can think of who occupies a position of human authority. That is what God sets up and what God removes when it pleases him. Romans 13, for there is no authority. Kingsway, hear this. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. What about Bashar al-Assad? Instituted by God. What about Kim Jong-un? Instituted by God. What about Mao Zedong or or Pol Pot or Saddam Hussein or Robert Mugabe or, or Joseph Stalin? Instituted by God. Okay, God God doesn't just exercise an authority that is greater than the greatest kings on earth. He gives them their reign. And then he takes it away. Now they can use it for good, they can use it for ill, but, but their kingdom, their dominion, it comes from the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold, but God gave it to you. And and the silver chest and arms of Nebuchadnezzar, they represent a second kingdom. By the way, bud, that means yours isn't going to be eternal and you're not going to live forever. (laughs) It's inferior to your own. It's not explicitly identified here, but in Daniel 8.20, we're told that it's the Medo-Persian Empire, which conquered Babylon in in 539 BC. And in the middle Bronze represents a third kingdom, which which Daniel identifies in Daniel 8.21 as the Greek Empire, which conquered the Medo-Persian Empire in 331 BC with Alexander the Great. 
But Daniel spends most of his time in chapter two on the fourth kingdom, the fourth kingdom. And what's remarkable about this kingdom, church, is that though it shows up again and again in the book of Daniel, this kingdom represented by iron and clay, Daniel never explicitly names it. Isn't that interesting? I'll, I'll spend more time on this later in the book, but, but for now, suffice it to say, okay, that I'm convinced Daniel doesn't name the fourth kingdom for two reasons. One, God didn't give him a name. That was smart on his part, okay? God didn't give me a name, I'm not gonna write it. And two, even if the prophecies that we see later in the book of Daniel related to the fourth kingdom are partially fulfilled by the Roman Empire, which everybody knows succeeded the Greek Empire, right? The fourth kingdom in Daniel still functions as a type or a symbol of all the kingdoms ruling the earth until the second coming of Christ. That's why it's not named. But in chapter two, Daniel doesn't give us any of the names that he does later, okay? Which should tell us that we don't need all those names to get the main point of the vision in chapter two. What's the main point? None of those kingdoms, none of those human kingdoms will last. None of them are eternal, okay? The, the kingdoms of the world are gonna go from bad to worse and eventually all of them are gonna come to an end. And unlike the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom set up by the God of heaven is indestructible and eternal. It's, it's not gonna be succeeded. It's not gonna be replaced. It endures forever. And we just don't have a category for that kind of kingdom. We don't. Because every kingdom we've ever seen in human history has a beginning, it has an end. And the kingdom of God here in the vision is symbolized by this stone fashioned by the hand of God himself that, that destroys the kingdoms of the world and, and becomes this mountain filling the whole earth. Now, what in the world is up with that? Well, for the Jewish exiles, that symbol of a stone had tremendous significance, okay? In Psalm 118, the psalmist praises God with these words. Listen, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. What, what did that tell these exiles before they got to Babylon? There's a day coming when God is gonna save his people, and he's gonna do it through a stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God. And then this idea of the, the kingdom of God taking over the whole world like a, a mountain filling the earth would have struck a chord from Isaiah chapter two where the prophet said, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. But listen, as much as this stone triggered a promise that God was gonna come and save and his kingdom would fill the whole earth that the exiles were familiar with, friends, on this side of Calvary, we have insight here. We have understanding here that none of the exiles had, okay? And it comes from Matthew 21, where Jesus quotes Psalm 118, 
He identifies himself as the cornerstone in God's plan of salvation. And then he declares this to the Jews. The one who falls on this stone, me, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What is that? That's Jesus saying, I'm the stone from Daniel 2. <laughs> okay, I'm the stone that, that shatters the kingdoms of the world and inaugurates the kingdom of God. Now, did Jesus defeat the Romans? No. So what's up with that? What's up with that? Well, he inaugurated the kingdom of God, all right, but he did it by conquering the power of sin and death, okay? And then he said, there's a day coming in the future when I'm gonna come back and consummate the kingdom I inaugurated, finish the work I began by judging all the nations of the world, destroying every human kingdom, every human power, and I'm gonna establish my physical reign in the new heavens and the new earth. What does that mean? What Jesus inaugurated in a spiritual sense at his first coming, he is going to consummate in a final eternal sense physically at his second coming. That's the promise. And, and we live in this time between this kingdom of God already here and kingdom of God not yet here. So what difference should that make in our lives? What difference should it make that God has revealed to us in Christ, not just the supremacy of his wisdom, but the supremacy of his power? What difference does it make? Well, friend, I think there's at least three applications here. I want to conclude with these, okay? How should we live in light of the fact that the supremacy of God's power is displayed in Christ. It has been when he first came, it's going to be when he comes back. How should we live in this time between his comings, okay? Well, first, if you are spending your life building the kingdom of you, you are pouring yourself into a hopeless cause. A hopeless cause, okay? Your present confidence in the glory of your business your reputation, your education, or your nest egg is an illusion. It's an illusion. It won't last. Don't place your confidence and dedicate your life to something that is ultimately passing away. Don't do that. Dedicate your life, direct your confidence to what will never pass away, the kingdom of God, even as you spend so many of your waking hours living in the kingdom of this world, okay? That's the first application. Here's the second. Don't be afraid as you watch God remove and set up kings and rulers in this life. Translation, Donald Trump is not in charge. Hillary Clinton is not in charge. God is in charge. God is in charge and he does what pleases him and he is not enslaved to the will of the American electorate. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. Does, does he work and, and move through human elections? Yes, he does. But he does so in a way that fulfills his purposes, his plans, his will in such a way that his kingdom ultimately comes to pass. That's our hope. That's our confidence. November 8th is not a cause for fear. It's a cause for gratitude. Gratitude that, that the words of the hymn we'll sing shortly are still 
true. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. He shall reign in glory, crowned with grace and might. Bless his name and praise our sovereign king. He shall reign forever with his chosen bride and all the earth shall sing that Jesus is the king. Okay? Here's the third application. Third application. First, we refuse to live building the kingdom of me because that's a hopeless cause. Second, we don't fear as we see human kingdoms come and go. That's the Lord's work ultimately. He's in charge of that. And then third, okay, third, we don't lose heart as we fight to show the world what God is like even while we wait for his kingdom to come in full. What do I mean by that? Well, very simply, you are fighting Christian on the winning team. (laughs) You're fighting on the winning team. When, When the child under your watch in the ICU dies, you need to remember that. When the son that you have raised from birth refuses to follow the Lord, you need to remember that. When the church you've poured your life into struggles, when the Christian friends that you you thought you could count on fail, when the, the spouse who said, I do, now says, I'm done, you need to remember that. You're fighting on the winning team. Okay, to whatever degree you're fighting with, with, with all your spiritual, physical, and emotional resources to show the world what God is like, you need to remember this morning that in Christ, painful setbacks and temporary failures are part of a bigger current, a stronger tide, a greater story that is moving inexorably onward to the eternal reign of the kingdom of God. You've got to remember that. You have to see your life and your troubles and all the brokenness around you and inside of you in light of that story. Our trials won't last forever, but the kingdom of God will. And as Pastor Ian Duguid says, we should be more concerned with what the future holds than when it comes to pass. That's wise. That's wise. Friends, the dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar in the sixth century confronted a pagan king and Jews in exile with the supremacy of God's wisdom and the supremacy of God's power. And this chapter does the same for us today by pointing us to the one in whom God's wisdom and God's power are most fully revealed and most decisively displayed, okay? In Christ, God displays the supremacy of his power and reveals the supremacy of his wisdom. And when we see his wisdom and when we behold his power, well, then we find a wellspring for enduring confidence in this world that nobody can touch. Not even an absolute monarch. Let's pray. Father, I ask right now that as you have confronted us with your wisdom and your power, that you would help us to look to Christ. Jesus, I'm thankful that we, 
though you confront us with a dream that you gave a man centuries ago, with what's true about you, I thank you, God, that, that you gave us even something clearer, stronger, more glorious to look to where we can see your wisdom and see your power, and that's the gospel. Lord, I pray today, wherever we have lost sight of your story in the midst of the pain of our little stories, that you would raise our eyes, that we would delight in your reign, and we would trust you with all our hearts. Thank you, Lord, in a world of chaos around us and inside of us, that there is a God in heaven who reveals what is true and through his power gets us home. We love you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.